You're listening to the Nonprofit Buildup Podcast, and I'm your host, Nick Campbell. I want to support movements that can interrupt cycles of injustice and inequity and shift power towards vulnerable and marginalized communities. I've spent years working in and with nonprofits and philanthropies, and I know how important infrastructure is to outcomes. On this show, we'll talk about how to build capacity to transform the way you and your organization work. Hi, everyone. This week on the Nonprofit Buildup, we're talking with Ricardo Castro, the Senior Vice President, General Counsel, and Secretary of the International Rescue Committee. The IRC is an international organization that responds to the world's worst humanitarian crises and helps people whose lives and livelihoods are shattered by conflict and disaster to survive, recover, and gain control of their future. Ricardo Castro possesses that rare combination of legal background with solid strategic and operational organizational leadership. He has extensive knowledge of how to successfully develop and manage mission-critical nonprofit organizations serving a diverse global constituency. Ricardo has developed a reputation in the nonprofit field as an expert in philanthropy, particularly as it pertains to international activities. He's regularly asked to speak as an expert at conferences and international meetings, and recently completed his term on the Board of Advisors of the National Center on Philanthropy and the Law. Ricardo and I recorded this conversation last year in 2020, when we were at the height of an international health crisis that we're still finding our way through. Ricardo is captivating in how he speaks about IRC's work and how IRC is responding to yet another crisis and helping countries around the world. He also talks about how essential it is for nonprofits to share their stories and to consider and illustrate the impact of their interventions. He points out how funders need to be more flexible and adaptable in what they require of grantees in moments of crisis and how the sector should focus less on process and more on support. Ricardo discusses the importance of funding infrastructure development to ensure that all organizations, including grassroots organizations, can share the important stories of marginalized communities. This conversation encourages us all to reflect on how we can adapt to the needs of the moment and how we can thoughtfully build more resilient organizations. Now, we had a few audio issues in this conversation, but please ignore them. This conversation is that insightful. And with that, here is Ricardo Castro. Hi, Ricardo. It is so great to have you joining us for our Fast Bill Leader Series. Hi, Nick. It's really good to be with you. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. To get us started, can you tell us about the International Rescue Committee, your role there, and IRC's immediate priority? Sure, sure. So the International Rescue Committee, or IRC for short, has been around since the 1930s. It's one of the world's largest humanitarian organizations. It was established originally at the urging of Albert Einstein to help Jews escaping Nazi Germany at the time. And since then, it has grown to quite a large organization. It's probably around 14,000, 15,000 employees and volunteers around the world. It operates in over 30 countries. 
and it assists people who are affected, impacted by conflict or natural disaster or a crisis of some sort, providing humanitarian assistance. And it also is the largest refugee resettlement agency in the United States. So refugees who resettle in the United States are resettled by a number of different agencies. There are nine. IRC is one of those nine resettlement agencies, and in fact, is the largest of the nine. So it's a humanitarian organization and a refugee resettlement agency that's been around for quite some time, has a very large operating budget. This current fiscal year, around 800, over $800 million operating budget funded. About 75% of the funding is from governments, U.S. government, U.K. government, Swedish government, governments, others as well, and the other 25% private fundraising. Can you tell us a little about what you do there? What's your role? Oh, sure. I'm the Senior Vice President, General Counsel, and Secretary. That's quite a mouthful. So I run the legal department, the Office of General Counsel. There are five lawyers, and myself makes six. And I also provide executive oversight over two other units, One is called the Ethics and Compliance Unit, which, among other things, investigates allegations of misconduct throughout the organization, and the Internal Audit Unit, which audits our internal controls around the world and our operations around the world. And in light of COVID-19 and just what's going on in the world, what is IRC's immediate priority? Well, the immediate priority is the safety and security of its personnel around the world. We operate in, obviously, we operate in the United States and in Europe, but we operate, most of our country programs are in Africa and Asia and Latin America. And so first and foremost is the safety and security and well-being of our own staff and volunteers. And then, of course, to try to ensure business continuity. We are sort of lifeblood as an organization is to provide assistance to people in dire circumstances ordinarily due to conflict or natural disaster. And what that involves is providing for people's basic needs, either in refugee camps or outside of refugee camps, in communities that involves providing uh, public health and medical care services to people in need, education, cash assistance, all the sorts of things that people need to survive under difficult circumstances. So we're trying to ensure that that work continues during this crisis and preparing for COVID-19 to impact those countries in which we operate. Because as we all know, the global north has been hit much more, at least currently, much more significantly by the virus. And the global south, we are beginning to see COVID-19 cases be reported in increasing numbers. But we work in many countries where the reporting systems are unfortunately reliable. So we believe that unfortunately the numbers are probably at the moment understated, even as it just begins to take hold there. So we're very concerned about the potential impact in countries that have much weaker public health systems than we do. So it's quite concerning. 
So you're doing critical work with a significant global footprint. And you've also explained that, you know, essentially you're also fundraising, right? Although 75% of your budget does come from government, the other 25% is coming from somewhere else. And so a question I have for you, particularly now in this environment that we're in, what's your advice to nonprofits that fundraise as a significant part of their budget? So in other words, what do you think should be top of mind for them right now during this time of uncertainty? Yeah. No, I think that's a great question. And by the way, the government funds that we raise require a lot of work as well to raise those funds. So the government funding is a separate animal, but it requires a lot of work both to obtain those awards from governments and to manage them and to report on them. There's a whole infrastructure that's needed to carry out that type of work. But on the private fundraising side, which I assume your question is addressing probably primarily private fundraising. And I think the key is to tell stories. I think storytelling about what your organization is doing that's consistent with its mission, why it's critical, and being able really to point to evidence. And sometimes that evidence is in the form of stories. To be able to point to evidence of why what you're doing is making a difference and why the interventions that you're choosing to pursue in whatever your mission is, why those interventions are worthy of someone's hard-earned money. And I think that there are many ways to make that case to the public, but I think stories are very compelling. So if you are helping immigrant families in low-income neighborhoods. I think allowing the voices of the people you're helping to shine through in your appeals is very, very important. There are other ways, of course, as well. As we all know, everyone, funders particularly these days, are very concerned about data. So this is can be tricky because if you're a small organization that is community-based and doesn't have a lot of resources, You may not have a lot of funds or means to collect data and evidence in ways that some funders require. And so you have to be creative and find other ways to provide the evidence that what you're doing matters and makes a difference. And again, I go back to the issue of storytelling. I know that as a just merely as a citizen, if I receive an appeal that contains a really compelling story, I will be more apt to support that effort. So I think storytelling is really critical. I really like that answer, Ricardo, and I really agree with you. I think that a lot of our efforts, if not all of them, should be going towards telling our story, how loudly we're telling it, who are we sharing that story with, who else is picking up that story and telling it to others. So I really like that response. And I also agree with you about the involvement of uh, fundraising from governments and working with government funding. So even having worked with you on a lot of those cases, I know how involved it can be. And I know you also mentioned funders in when you were explaining what nonprofits who fundraise should be focused on and what funders are might be looking for at this point. So if we were to look on the other side of that conversation, what's your advice to funders beyond give more money 
What's that advice for them to support nonprofit sustainability, both within and beyond this crisis? Yeah, I think that for funders, I think my pitch to funders, frankly, would be to be more flexible and to adapt requirements accordingly. I think that in a moment of crisis, particularly, donors need to show some flexibility to allow the work that's mission critical to be accomplished with perhaps some lightening of reporting requirements and things that, frankly, add a lot of burden and work to organizations that are maybe actually not even sufficiently funded to cover a lot of the compliance aspects of the work and really have to stretch. At a lot of smaller organizations, people are wearing multiple hats. And if you can lighten up a little bit on some of the reporting requirements or maybe even show some flexibility in terms of how funds can be used within or an already pre-approved budget, I think that would be very helpful at this time. Just to show some flexibility, be a bit agile, allow people to adapt a little bit, I think that would go a long way and would help people. So we have advice for both nonprofits and funders, and I think your response is touching on this, but what do you wish we did less of as a sector and what do you think we should do more of? Yeah, so I think that what we should do less of as a sector is probably place a little bit less of an emphasis on process and what for some organizations really feels like a lot of bureaucracy. If that can be minimized, I think that would be very helpful. And the thing I think that we can do more of, I think, is to, for funders particularly, to fund infrastructure development a bit more. So, for instance, I go back to this issue of data and evidence. A lot of funders want organizations to provide all sorts of data and evidence about the efficacy of their work, et cetera, and the impact. Impact is the magic word. And I get that. I think that's valid. But I think that perhaps they don't quite understand what that means for an organization in practice that is short-staffed, that does not have the technology, perhaps, to gather data and to report on metrics in the way that might be desired by the donor. So I think it's very important in those cases for donors to pay for that infrastructure that's needed to meet those demands. So, I mean, I have seen many occasions where there are requirements imposed on organizations And they really have to spend their own unrestricted funds in order to comply with those requirements because the grants received don't have budget lines to support the people needed to generate that type of reporting, let's say, or that type of data. So it really cuts into their unrestricted funds in a way that is not really intended, I'm sure by some donors. 
So I think it's important for donors to be very mindful of what requirements they're imposing and fund the ability of the organization to meet those requirements. You are speaking my language, Ricardo, and it actually takes me into my next question for you, which is, how is IRC thinking about these issues? How is it thinking about building infrastructure, particularly during this time when a lot of nonprofits are focused on programmatic strategy or on fundraising, which again, should be important and at the forefront, but how is IRC thinking about building its infrastructure now during this uncertain time during the pandemic, but also beyond the pandemic? Yeah, that's a very good question. I think IRC is fortunate because it's a very large, well-established humanitarian organization that is well-funded and has developed over the years a significant and effective infrastructure. So for IRC, it's not so much the question of building infrastructure, it's actually adapting the infrastructure to new circumstances. So I'll give you an example. We have a very sophisticated ethics and compliance unit that looks into any expressions of concern by members of the public, staff, vendors, whoever. And part of what they do is to conduct uh, reviews of situations in country. Well, in a circumstance where travel is off limits, our issue is not developing that infrastructure because we have it. It's how does it get differently deployed and utilized in a new set of circumstances? How do you leverage technologies in a different way to permit you to carry out those same sorts of investigations and activity without the need to travel? How do you partner with colleagues in the field to undertake some of the activity that you might otherwise have undertaken from headquarters? So for us, and there are other infrastructural units like that, like our global supply chain team and other our internal audit team, these are all teams that require us to do work on the ground. And in this context, where travel is not permitted, where safety and the health needs of your staff are critical, for us, the question is, how do we change the way our infrastructure is behaving and conducting its work so that we remain effective? and so that we continue to comply with the requirements of our donors, and we continue to comply with our own code of conduct and with our own standard operating procedures around procurement and things like that. All these different infrastructural functions are challenged in so far as not the number of people they may have working in those units, but the methodologies for working are challenged. And so it requires us to be adaptive, to be flexible, and to be creative, actually. You have to come up with creative ways to get the same things done. But other organizations, particularly smaller not-for-profit organizations, don't have the issue we're having. They have the issue of actually maybe realizing for the first time that they need a certain type of infrastructure function. And that's the different kettle of fish 
And again, it requires the organization to really assess its needs very carefully. And you also have to be careful. Now's a tricky time because what your needs might be during COVID-19 and the pandemic may be rather different. So you have to sort of think of what, assess your needs in the immediate moment and also in the medium and long term. So it's a challenging time to think about that. I like that. I like that approach because it really just says it's not just about building once and forgetting about it and saying, we've done that, it's, we're fine. But it's this continuous assessment to make sure that these powerful stories that we've been talking about of the communities that we're serving are continuing to be told, right? And we have the infrastructure to support that. And for the new organizations or the newer organizations or smaller organizations that are building that infrastructure, taking that moment to say, what do we need now and what might we need later? So that really resonates. Uh, Ricardo, this conversation has been incredible. I want to ask you a question to help us continue to build knowledge through books and people we should learn about or from to close us out. What book do you think we should read next or what artists do you think we should be paying attention to? Well, I'll answer the artist question first because I was just I was just thinking about someone last few days that I really admire. It's a woman by the name of a visual artist by the name of Micheline Thomas, who is a black, as she describes herself, a black queer woman artist, Micheline Thomas. She's extraordinary. She produces beautiful work to look at, just really striking. And she also elevates the day-to-day existence of Black women, largely, in really like home settings. But the way she depicts the people in her work, she works largely in collage with lots of color. She also does amazing installations, reproducing like people's living rooms and things in the 70s. It's really pretty cool. And she's remarkable because she's very interested in elevating stories of people that she grew up with in New Jersey. She's from New Jersey, so I'm from New Jersey, so I like that (laughs) about her as well. And she's doing extraordinarily well now. She's gotten a lot of attention, lots of shows all over. She's worth listening to when she talks about her work, if you can catch her on YouTube. She was invited to be a trustee of MoMA. She's quite remarkable. She was featured recently in a short video that was done about butch women in the New York Times, a little video that was done about that. It was really terrific. And the other thing I really like, the last thing I'll say about her is that she's really using her own fame to elevate other artists of color. And she's having them be part of her shows. And she's very concerned about I think she refers to it as community of practice and bringing other people in her community into her work and giving them visibility as well as part of her own journey. So she's a really cool person. So I think she's very well worth looking at. I'm definitely going to check out her work. And can you say her name one more time, Ricardo? Micheline. It's M-I-C-K-A-L-E-N-E, Micheline Thomas. Micheline Thomas. Okay. I'm definitely going to check her out. So thank you for sharing that. 
And you've also shared such incredible wisdom that leaders can practically use in their own organizations to help them build bravely. So thank you so much for joining us today, Ricardo. Oh, of course. It's my pleasure. Anytime. Thanks for the work you're doing. I think it's really, really, really valuable and the community's in your debt. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Nonprofit Buildup. To access the show notes, additional resources, and information on how you can work with us, please visit our website at buildupadvisory.com. We invite you to listen again next week as we share another episode about scaling impact by building infrastructure and capacity in the nonprofit sector. Keep building bravely.